but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. So it's the beginning of February. It's not quite tax time yet, but I just like to talk a little bit about taxes. I wonder how many of you have started doing your taxes. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. So with taxes, there's kind of three different things you can do with taxes. And one is that you can just pay your taxes. And that's a good thing. As Christians, we're supposed to pay our taxes. And when we do that, we're contributing to society. We're paying for hospitals to run. We're paying for snow plows to keep our roads clear. We're paying for the police to keep our streets safe. So, so that's a good thing. So that's paying your taxes. The other thing you can do is tax avoidance. And that is also a good thing. You don't have to necessarily pay the full amount of your taxes because the government has decided there's certain times where it's good you don't pay taxes on certain things to encourage you to do those things. So examples of that would be the fact that you, you can put money into, uh, or you can deduct your medical expenses. The government thinks it's good for you to to pay money to keep yourself healthy. Um, you can also put money into a tax-free savings account to prepare for your retirement or an RRSP because the government wants you to be uh, financially sound in your retirement. Or you could make charitable donations to places like Trinity Grace Church. Um, so those are ways you can avoid taxes and thereby lower your tax bill. And then the third thing you can do to lower your tax bill is called tax evasion. And it also lowers your tax bill, but it's an entirely different thing. That An example of that would be claiming uh, as business deductions personal expenses or not, or, or not counting cash income you had as part of your income. Those are ways of reducing your taxes, but they're not legal, they're not ethical. And just the fact that everyone's doing it just the fact that it may seem socially acceptable in your circles does not make it right. It's wrong. It's illegal. The reason I'm talking about taxes, I'm just using it as an analogy for Christian persecution and suffering. There's a lot to learn from 1 Peter. Lots to learn. But we, we need to keep in mind that the primary purpose of 1 Peter is to encourage a persecuted church. And the term suffer, suffering, suffered, appears 18 times in the book of Peter. I think it appears like 120 times in the whole Bible. So this short book of just five chapters speaks a lot about suffering. So um, I'd like to talk a bit about persecution. It's talking about suffering and persecution, but I'd talk, like to talk about persecution. And when it comes, out, comes to living out our Christian life, we are to be innocent as doves, and as wise as serpents, and this includes persecution. So, as I sort of said with the taxes and tax avoidance, there's times where it's okay to avoid persecution. And next week we'll be speaking about, or Albert will be speaking, I presume it's Albert next week, we'll be speaking about the importance of submitting to the state. 
these instructions next week will help us to stay in the state's good books and give a good Christian testimony. So that's a way to avoid suffering. If, if you're going against the government all the time for no reason, you're going to suffer for that. You don't need to. Let's avoid that. But sometimes the state's going to ask us to do things that don't fit in with our Christian walk, that in fact they're conflicting with being obedient to God. And so if we choose to obey the state under those circumstances, rather than God, we are into this mode of evasion, which is not acceptable as a Christian. So sometimes you can choose to avoid uh, doing the wrong thing. Perhaps it means doing a different job or going to a different school. But at other times, you'll need to respectfully submit to the state, and that might be by enduring persecution paying your taxes, so to speak. So just recently in this building, last week, in fact, we heard firsthand of a personal testimony of a person who'd been jailed for a crime for living out and sharing their faith in Christ just last week. Now, that was Adib, and it happened halfway around the world, and we have others here who know about paying that price for living out your faith. Um, now, we're in Canada, and we can remember that the very first line of our Charter of Rights and Freedom says, whereas Canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. That's the very first line of our Charter of Rights and Freedom. And then in the first section following that, it says, Everyone has the following fundamental freedoms, freedom of conscience and religion. So we're in a very different place than Afghanistan. There's no doubt about that. We have these documents that recognize God as being supreme. But while persecution isn't severe in Canada, it's on the uptick. And um, just here's an example. In Ontario, the courts have said doctors are required to refer patients to medical procedures like physician-assisted suicide or abortion, even if making the referrals violates the doctor's conscience or goes against their religious beliefs. So the government doesn't care what your religious beliefs are. They don't care about the supremacy of God when it comes to suicide and abortion. Uh, bill C-4, uh, this is the conversion therapy bill. And, and I'll just say, um, I don't believe the Bible forces anyone to be converted. I will acknowledge that there has been times where Christians have forced people to be converted, but I don't think there's any uh, reason why you want to force someone against their will to become a Christian. And so I, I, don't, I don't believe in forcing people to be converted to anything. But this conversion therapy has to do with people being converted from being gay or lesbian, etc., and uh, so the government came out with a bill against that, and they felt it was necessary in the preamble to say, whereas conversion therapy causes harm to society, because this is the reason it causes uh, harm to society, because it is based on and propagates myths, myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, including the myth that heterosexuality 
cisgender identity and gender expressions that conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations. It's a hard sentence to understand, but at the base of it is the government is declaring that what we believe that God created us man and woman is a myth. It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. We're here for nothing. We're here celebrating a myth. Um, so I'm, I'm separating the fact of forcing conversion therapy from the government feeling it was necessary to say that the Christian faith is a myth. And I'm not talking politics. It was every single party that unanimously endorsed this as quickly as they possibly could. Nothing's ever happened faster. So that doesn't really seem to be a neutral government that doesn't care about religions, it's just about administration. It's a government that is stating explicitly that what we believe and what we've come here for is a myth. So all I'm saying is that we're living in a society where the state at times is hostile to our Christian faith and that there is Christian persecution in our country. I think it's gonna get worse. And I think that's why we need what Peter's telling us. So. Um, and I will get to the verses. I will get to the verses, I promise you. So, uh, Peter, I talked about paying your taxes. I talked about avoiding paying your taxes. And I talked about tax, tax evasion. And the writer of our book, Peter, knows quite a bit about evasion. So, Peter, I'm going to read from Mark 14, verses 66 to 72. Peter had been arrested and taken to the high, or sorry, Jesus had been arrested and taken to the high priest. This is just before his crucifixion. The council of the chief priests and elders and scribes were seeking testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death. And when they did not like the answers, Jesus was, when they did not like the answers that Jesus was giving, they spat on him and they beat him. The guards beat him. So we pick it up in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. So Peter's being evasive here. He's refusing to admit that he's associated with Jesus and he's playing dumb. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man was one of them. But he denied it. So now he, he's not even willing to be associated with other followers of Christ. And after a while, after, after a little while, the bystanders again said to Jesus, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So now Peter is not even willing to be associated with the region of Galilee. And he's, he's swearing and he's trying to fit in. He's trying to do things that are certainly not Christian. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, and he broke down 
and wept. So Peter denied his association with Jesus, his association with his followers, his association with the region of Galilee, and uh, he was just trying to blend in. He didn't want to be persecuted. So why do we evade persecution and disobey God? Um, I think it's obvious. I think it's out of fear. And Peter would have been worried about arrest, torture, and execution. Aside from being associated with Jesus, who was, had faced all that or was facing all that, you'll recall in the, when they had arrested Jesus, Peter had cut off the ear of Malchus. Jesus had healed that ear, his last miracle, um, before, before his death and resurrection. But Peter had real worries, um, and he chose, chose to deny Christ at that time. In Canada, we don't have the same worries as some other countries, but we may, by identifying ourselves with Jesus, by identifying ourselves with other Christians, we may lose friends. We may have people thinking we're weird. We may lose our job. Perhaps we could be arrested. So when we make these decisions to evade persecution, we justify it with excuses like, this, this really isn't any of my business. This, I don't really have a part in this. Uh, just live and let live. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We're just, it's not my business, what you're talking about. Or we might say that uh, we're no one important. The fight for Christianity is for the important people, for the pastors and for the elders and the church leaders, but I'm just in the pews. It's not my battle. Or we might say, you know, I'm, I'm all alone here. I'm all alone. None of my friends have the same views, and I just don't feel like I can speak out because I'm by myself. And maybe just getting back to frightened, I'm just too frightened. I know the right thing to do, but I'm just too frightened. I can't do anything about it. So trying to stay warm around that charcoal fire in the dark, surrounded by enemies, Peter made the wrong decision. And that's the immature Peter. The mature Peter, who was inspired to write this book, is sharing with us important truths that will help us when we are tempted to deny Jesus these verses will help us to endure persecution, to pay our taxes, so to speak. Um, I'm just, one more thing before we get to the, the verses. Um, I think it's worth mentioning that uh, about the church in Israel. Albert addressed this in the first sermon in our studies of First Peter. It's worth mentioning today because our passage is almost identical to some Old Testament passages. If, if you I've left the verses up there, but virtually everything that's said up there was said in the Old Testament in similar context. And so I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 7, 6, and you can look at those verses and see what you see that's still there or that's, that's the same. So Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7, 6 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
So that's the passage from Deuteronomy. And the Israelites, as I've just read, had been miraculously brought out of Egypt by Moses. And now they would be starting the hard and dangerous work of occupying the promised land. So these words back then were to encourage them. So Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is, there is no male or female, and there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we have the same promises as Israel. So this text in Deuteronomy encouraged the Israelites in a time of difficulty. So also Peter's version of the text encourages us as Christians. So now to the verses. It starts off with, but you, and Colin, Colin did a great job last week. On the previous verses, I'm just going to read the two verses before. Uh, so seven and eight of First Peter two. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, those who don't believe, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you. So he's contrasting those who don't believe the word, that don't believe in Jesus, the cornerstone, but you. Now we're talking about people who do believe, who do obey the word. Zach, Zach uh, spoke about our identity, which was perfect right at the beginning of his, his, his explanation was perfect of it. Um, so there's four features here um, that, that uh, I describe our, our identity as Christians. And so I'm just going to go through these four features. And the first is we're a chosen race. So Harvard University chooses the very best candidates from all over the world. So they choose this group of people. And that is their glory. The people that graduate, all these smart people. That's the glory of Harvard. That's why Harvard is such a great university, because it chooses great people to begin with. So is that what it means to be a chosen race? Well, we know what it means to be a chosen race. We can read in 1 Corinthians 1.26. See if this fits you. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let no one boast, boast that no one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So I think you can understand from First um, Corinthians, none of us are getting into Harvard. Uh, that's one thing you can understand. We are a chosen race, and we have the high privilege of being chosen by God. That doesn't speak to our greatness, but rather the greatness of God's mercy and his grace. Just the fact that he would want sinful, lowly, stupid 
people on his team. So we come to the word race, and race is defined as a group of people identified as distinct from other groups because of a supposed physical or genetic trait shared by the, the uh, shared by this group. Well, we are a race because we are all born again in Christ. We're one big family. We have all things in common. Our spiritual DNA is identical. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So coming back to this thought of persecution, if you are in a position where you feel you cannot uh, identify yourself with Christ, and you're thinking of evading that situation, and you're making excuses like, well, this isn't really any of my business. You know, live and let live. You do your thing. I'm going to do mine. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be silent. I'm just going to go along with things. Keep in mind that you have to be obedient to God because you have been chosen to do this. And he knows that you're foolish and weak and low and despised, but he has chosen you. Um, the second uh, I, uh, feature of our identity is that we are a royal priesthood. And we're royal priesthoods in two different ways. One way is um, in the way that uh, people who work for the royal mail in the United Kingdom, uh, in that they are serving the king in delivering the mail. So they have this royal title. Um, and that's also true, I think, for all the battleships. HMS, His Majesty's Service. They always put that before the name of the battleship. So they are in a royal service, and we're a royal priesthood in that we're ser serving the King of Kings. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.10 says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for... If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So we are also royalty in, in uh, God's family. We've been called to become a royal priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices. Colin explained about that last week. And this means that even now, not in the future, but even now, we have priestly responsibilities. They're not all off in the future. And, and I just underline it. If you're a royal priest, do you understand your responsibilities? How are you going to know what your responsibilities are? You need to know the Bible. You need to know what God's instructions are for you. So again, if you feel you're in a position where you're being, uh, you're going to have to deny Christ or be persecuted. And if you're making the excuse that you can evade persecution by claiming to be unimportant, you know, I'm just, I'm an unimportant person. It's not my battle. That's for the important people. I also thought of the, uh, this is for the younger people. Um, perhaps you think you're an NPC. Uh, there, I got, I got one smile from that. Uh, in the video games, there's something called non-performing characters. And uh, when you're playing a video game, there's you and there's maybe people trying to get you. But then there's these bystanders who really aren't doing anything. They're just kind of scenery. And uh, perhaps you say, you know, I'm just a non-performing character. Uh, I don't have to say anything at this point. But you are a royal priest, and your conduct should uh, reflect the glory of God. And, and one other thing, you might say, well, I, priests are like these really holy people. We heard about holy priesthood last week. 
they're holy people. I don't really qualify. I've had sin in life. I can't can't be a holy priest. I I've just in the past year I've thought of Aaron. Moses is on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments. Aaron's brother is partying down down there, and he's got golden calves popping out of the fire, and it's just a mess. Who's the high priest? Aaron. God's mercy. Um, so if Aaron can be a high priest, you can be a royal priest. The next one is the holy nation. Um, we are not Canadians as much as we are Christians who happen to live in Canada. That's our identity. And we have, I already mentioned, we have our spiritual DNA in common with Christians around the world, making us much more similar to Christians all over the world than to our neighbors and to our family who don't know Christ. Now, one, one thing people bring up was like, how can we be a nation without boundaries, right? What's, how do you describe that? You know, what's the boundaries of the kingdom of God? Well, again, I, I, was, I, I have an Orthodox Jewish friend, and I asked him about this. Think of um, Jacob's family, Israel. Now, he's got a big family, right? There's 12 boys. I didn't check. Maybe there was girls too, but there were certainly 12 boys. We know that. And so there's a famine. They all go down to Egypt. So Egypt presumably has a boundary. And then you've got this this group with 12 people in it. And then when Moses arrives hundreds of years later and says, let's go, a nation appears. They, they didn't have a boundary. And, and what's very interesting is that they, uh, they didn't have the Bible. They didn't have the Ten Commandments. They didn't have the ceremonial law. They didn't have anything. And yet they knew they were a nation. And we have so much more than that. We have the whole Bible. And we are a nation. Whether or not um, we have uh, a, a boundary we can call our own, you know, as far as a geographical boundary. So if your excuse to evade persecution, if your reason is, well, this time I'm going to divide, de, um, deny Christ, is that I'm all alone. Think, think of Elijah. Um, he tried this excuse with God. He was hiding in a cave, and he was scared. And he literally said, I'm all alone. And God explained to him, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. That's 1 Kings 19.18. Elijah was not alone, and neither are you. When Peter wrote this, there were perhaps a few thousand Christians. Um, now there are almost two billion. We are not alone. We're part of a holy nation. Um, the fourth feature of our identity is that we're a people for his own possession. We have been bought with a price. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. That's how we are a people of his own possession. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son. That's the purchase. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. 
Who is to get them? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So again, if you are being tempted to deny Christ, and you want to do that to avoid persecution, and you're frightened, remember how valuable you are to God. His own son paid the price for our sins on the cross, he will not leave us or forsake us. We now come to that you may proclaim. The reason that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people for his own possession is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Ernie shared this morning Verses about Jesus being that true light that gives light to everyone. The light that is able and willing to save us. And so we're to proclaim, we're to pronounce, we're to declare about this light. Um, just as Lazarus called, actually, just as Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb from the death and darkness into light and life, Jesus calls us as well. And um, just speaking of this marvelous light, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And so we're to proclaim his excellencies and the word excellencies, it's a plural, but we're speaking of his moral goodness, his virtue, his uprightness. So how do we proclaim his excellencies? I think the first thing we need to know is we need to know um, who God is. How can you proclaim the excellencies of someone you don't know? So I'm going to pick on Zach Quinn. If you were asked to proclaim the excellencies of Zach Quinn sitting humbly in the back, if you don't know who Zach is, you're going to have a hard time proclaiming the excellencies. And if you haven't got to know him, you're going to have a hard time, but quickly, as you get to know Zach and you get to see his handiwork in art and hear him play difficult songs on the piano and how dependable he is coming out to hymns and harmony, um, I can start proclaiming his excellencies, but I have to get, know him better to even proclaim more. So uh, it's just I could pick other people. Sorry, Zach, I had to do that. But um, and, and the way we communicate to people that we know God is in word and in deed. So we can just stay in 1 Peter, and I won't preach on these verses, but 1 Peter 3, uh, 1, 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, as always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we should be prepared with words to 
communicate to people about our God. And then as far as deeds, this is next week. Again, I'm preaching on it. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's both words talking about God, but then also your life is a testimony to God. So we need to speak out God's excellencies. We need to live out God's excellencies. We need to walk the talk. And now we get to once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I, I have to admit, I struggled with a bit about you're not a people. Does that mean you're an animal? or What's it mean to be not a people? They're not a group of people. And as I said earlier, these two short verses are really just from the Old Testament. So to get these verses, at least there's probably other places it's mentioned, but we need to go back almost 3,000 years to the prophet Hosea. And uh, God had a very, um, Hosea was asked to do something very strange. And that was to marry a prostitute. Um, not, not a prostitute who was formerly a prostitute, who um, had forsaken the life and repented and turned to God, but a prostitute. And um, the reason God did this is he wanted to impress upon the people. He took this prophet and had him do this because he wanted to show the people that, that Israel... They, have, they were running after other gods. They were being unfaithful to him. And so Hosea was obedient and married Gomer. That was the name of the lady. And she bore three children to them. And God named each of the three children. And the third boy was not named Kyle. Uh, the third boy was named Hosea 1.9. Call his name, not my people. And the reason, it's, uh, I guess the Hebrew is lo ami, or I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's pretty close. And God says, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So that's a terrible thing. To be God's people, and then being told you're not God's people, and God is not your God. Nothing's worse. But then, if you read all the way to the end of Hosea, and you get to chapter 14, verses 4 to 7, you find out that God is willing to forgive Israel. Starting in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrances like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So Hosea, faithfully, according to God's will, married a prostitute. She was unfaithful to him and left him. And yet God told Hosea to redeem Gomer. He needed to buy her back. I think it was 15 shekels of silver. I can't remember. But he had to buy back his own wife who'd been unfaithful to him. And just uh, a beautiful picture of God's people 
receiving, receiving God's mercy. And uh, we, we had a, a lovely dinner last night. My wife had prepared a dinner for our family. And I was sort of thinking of my, I, when I'm preparing a sermon, I'm just kind of constantly thinking of the sermon, uh, whatever I'm doing. Uh, so there I was sitting at dinner, having a lovely meal. And I was just thinking of Hosea. And my first thought actually was, well, here I am in a, a warm, dry house with all the modern conveniences. And Hosea was, you know, 3,000 years ago. I'm sure things were pretty unpleasant compared to our life. But then you think about those of you who aren't married and you're going to get married. You think, you know, you want that spouse, that perfect spouse who's going to be the right match for you. And I have that in Ruth. But for God to ask, sorry, it's tough. For God to ask Hosea to do that. And Hosea to do it. So, sorry about that. Um, Peter, let's get back to Peter. He wrote this book, and Peter is an expert in evasion. And I think we're all experts in evasion. I'll, I'll just tell you that the, the, the slide, I have my own slides, but the slide I wrote on evasion I did without research. I didn't need to check with any theologians. I didn't need to try to figure out any ideas because I'm evasive too. So we started this morning thinking of Peter standing in the darkness around the fire, <clears throat> trying to stay warm, trying to get along with his enemies, and more importantly, trying to evade persecution and by doing so denying his Lord Jesus. So th this is very serious. Very serious. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 33, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. So these are things I've done myself. But then we come to Peter again. I'm going to read from John chapter 21, verse 9. When they got out on land, this is um, after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's out fishing. That's what he was, a fisherman. And Jesus is on the shore. So when they, that's Peter and the other disciples, they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. How comforting to know that after the resurrection, in the morning light, Peter was standing on the beach around a fire where Jesus, whom Peter denied, was making breakfast. In asking whether Peter loved him three times, Peter received mercy. And not only mercy, but Peter was given a leadership role in the church. Just like Aaron. I wouldn't have made Aaron a high priest. I never would have done that. And I don't know that I would have allowed Peter to have a leadership role in the church. But God did that. So just to summarize, remember, when you are potentially facing persecution and doubts crowd in and excuses pour out 
And when you say, this, this is none of my business, live and let live, just remember that God chose you for this. You've been chosen for this situation. And when you say, you know what, I'm just a little person, this is for the leaders, remember that you are a royal priest. And when you're feeling all alone, when you think there's no one here who agrees with me, remember that you're part of a holy nation. And when you're just frightened, remember that you are God's possession. Peter gave us these verses so that we could stand firm when facing trials of all sorts. And in doing so, we proclaim his excellencies through both word and deed. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the blessings we have in Christ. We thank you for the assurance we have as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your possession. May we be encouraged to be steadfast and faithful as we proclaim your excellencies in both word and deed. We pray for protection and encouragement for our brothers and sisters all over the world, but in your kingdom, in your holy nation who are facing persecution today. We especially remember those of the chosen race in the church in Afghanistan as they face great persecution. One of the hardest countries in the world to follow you, Jesus. Lord, we also want to confess like Peter, we have at different times chosen to evade persecution by denying you with both words and actions. Forgive us, Lord, in your great mercy, and we give thanks to you, our Lord Jesus Christ, for your sacrifice for our sins on the cross. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen.